Show of hands. How many of you have ever had any problems with your suitcases while traveling? Okay. Among that larger crowd, let me ask you a little bit more pointed question. How many of you have just flat out lost some of your luggage at one point or another? Quite a bit of you. This is a common experience. It doesn't feel good, does it? You're already in the stressful hustle and bustle of trying to get to wherever you're traveling. So you've got deadlines in your minds and these kinds of things. And then you realize it's gone. Now, it could be your suitcase or it could be a purse or a wallet. And then you get this feeling in your stomach. It drops and your mind starts spinning out of control and your eyes get about this wide. And in your mind, you're thinking, what am I going to do? Well, fortunately, I myself... I've not completely lost my baggage yet, but I've had other problems. And I want to tell you all about my biggest luggage disaster in just a bit. But before we do that, I'm going to ask that we would turn to our scripture reading this morning, which comes to us from Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. If you did not bring your Bibles with you this morning, you may find this passage beginning on page 1,834 in the pew Bibles that are there with you. I'm going to ask that you would turn there with me, if you will, so that you can follow along in just a moment. Now, as we read this passage, one of the things that you and I will notice is this. Paul, in verse 12, he talks about putting on new clothing. In the New Testament, putting on new clothing is another way of talking about baptism. In baptism is another way of talking about identity. Baptism, in a sense, is where we become clothed in Christ. Because in baptism, we publicly assume a new outward identity as a follower of Jesus. And so when we come to Christ, in a spiritual sense, we are dropping or losing an old set of garments. And then we are picking up and putting on a new set of clothes. For a time in the earlier days of the church, our Christian forefathers and foremothers developed a ritual to visualize this symbolic spiritual language. In those days, once a person was baptized, he or she would immediately put on a new set of white robes to wear. Evan, if you'll progress the slide there just once, we're going to have a picture of this. So take a look at this image here. When a person was baptized, they would be immediately be given a new set of clothes in order to symbolize the cleansing nature of Christ and their new identity in him. So if you look at this picture, you can see very closely behind the person about to be baptized. There is, in this case, a set of golden and white robes that they are to be immediately wrapped in as soon as they are baptized. I'm going to ask that you would follow along with me now as I read for us Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. 
Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether it is in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Father, may the word of your Messiah come alive and dwell richly in us today even as our hearts sing your praises our whole lives long. For we pray this in and through Christ. Amen. My luggage disaster. Years ago, back in January of 1995, before I had gray hair, Tracy and I had packed for a trip to the Holy Land, Israel, Jordan, and Egypt. The trip was underwritten by the seminary that we attended, and we were to be accompanied by a couple of our professors and about 20 other students there at the school we attended. Now, my mom had given Tracy and I a new set of luggage as as a wedding gift, and I stuffed those bags with as much clothes and extras as I thought we might need for this three-week trip. Now, I left a little space, though, Because I knew we would be returning with a few things to help us remember our travels, including, hopefully, something our teachers had all told us about would be available to us as a part of the trip. And it was this. Hand-carved olive wood nativity scenes made by a Christian artist in Bethlehem. Well, sure enough... We were able to land one of those hand-carved nativity sets in Bethlehem, along with some olive wood Christmas tree ornaments that we've hung on our Christmas tree for 26 years running now. Well, back to the trip. Two weeks passed, and our group went to Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv in order to set out for the last leg of our trip to Egypt. Now, you've got to understand that Uh, The Ben-Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv is probably the most secure, terrorist-proof airport in the world, and you can figure out why. So so we, we went into the airport, and then we began to file into a large group of separate tables that were set up all around the airport as we were going to board our flight. So Tracy and I finally reached the front of the line where we were greeted by what appeared to us as two Israeli college students who were checking our baggage for explosives. Tracy, the gracious southerner that she is, tried to be nice. And so she started making small talk. That didn't go over well. You would think that after a while working in an airport, they would at least be a little used to American Southerners, since one of them, as it turned out, had been a student at Clemson. Anyway, these two students started launching into a series of questions. Where are you from? Where have you been? Where are you going? Has your luggage been out of your sight at any moment? And then, remember, all of this was 
pre-9-11, right? This is 1995. All these questions. And then the question came. While you were in Israel, did anyone ever give you a package or a gift you did not open? Uh-oh. Okay, so this was before I was ordained, right? You know what I did? I lied. Yeah. Uh, I began to think about that olive wood manger scene that the artist there in Bethlehem went to the back room to pack up and then brought back out all wrapped up and gave it to us and I put it right in the suitcase. So I didn't actually watch, you know, this person prepare the nativity scene for travel, but I figured, now come on, were those Bethlehem merchants terrorist? Probably not. So I said what I did. And then one of them noticed on our passports that we had been in the Gaza Strip. So with a scowl, the girl asked us, what was your business there? Tourism. I said, she rolled her eyes. Most of Gaza is not much more than a garbage dump. And maybe sometime on another occasion I'll tell you about my trip into the Gaza Strip. Did you make any friends there? Did anyone give you anything there? And the questioning went on and on and on. After we cleared all the questioning, it was time to check our baggage. Now, you have to understand, by this time in the trip, I was carrying about 80 pounds of carefully packed clothes, travel accoutrements, and gifts. And I knew that the only explosion that was going to occur is if they opened my suitcase and my underwear and socks flew all over that airport. The young man started tugging on the zipper on the outside of my bag. What do you think happened? He broke it. Sorry. Now you'll have to transfer all your all of these items on the outside pocket uh, into another place because the airline will not allow anything on board that is unzipped. Wonderful. So I stood there wondering how, with my suit bag open, standing there wondering how I was going to be able to haul all this stuff around for another week in the Middle East. So as I was thinking about that, the baggage checkers went on to persecute other folks from our group, leaving me to figure out where I was going to pack my toothbrush. Well, that's my baggage nightmare. At least I didn't lose anything, though. Maybe you've had a similar type of experience. How many of you have stood for and lonely at a baggage carousel, watching it go round and round and round, just waiting and believing that eventually your bag is going to show up? You feel compelled to stand there, you search among the orphaned other bags that no one is claiming where your baggage is. And you just believe that suddenly, amazingly, your stuff is going to materialize. But then it doesn't. Losing our language, our baggage can be discombobulating, can it? Do, do people in South Carolina use that word, discombobulating? Folks who travel a lot have learned never to check through crucial papers, medications, and all their socks and underwear. They keep a little bit of that on them. It's just too risky to do otherwise. But here's the thing. Sometime in the next few days, before we get too far into this new year, I hope that all of us will make a conscious effort to lose some of our baggage. Because the truth is, 
most of us are carrying along with us and are bogged down with some things that we're carrying around that we don't need to. Let me put it another way. How many extra pounds of grudges are you and I lugging around? How many handbags of animosity are you holding on to? Maybe it's time to drop this stuff. How many sleeping bags of resentment are you carrying around with you right now? How many of our flight bags are filled with revenge? Frequently during this time of year, we all feel compelled to one degree or another to make New Year's resolutions that we optimistically want to carry with us into the new year. But how many times do we need to stop and think about the load we've already packed with us? The worst thing that we can do is to drag these old bags bursting with grudges, unforgiveness, or merciless attitudes with us into the new year. What if instead we lose some of our baggage? Earlier in verse 8 of Colossians chapter 3, portion of the chapter we did not read, Paul calls us to completely wrap up our lives in Christ in such a way that we put to death our old self that manifests itself in anger, in rage, in malice, in slander, in filthy language. And he gives us specific ways to do this. In the verses we read today, he says we're to clothe ourselves with compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And we'll know when we have this new outfit on, when we can forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. It's interesting to me here, the way that God's call to forgiveness is not really presented as an optional request. Forgiveness isn't something Christians should extend to others just because it's a nice thing to do. Or because it will promote peace within the body. Instead, Paul makes a connection between God's forgiveness and the forgiveness we offer to one another much more explicit. He insists that we are called to forgive because God has forgiven us. Forgiveness, you see, is not something that we just simply owe one another. And it isn't something that we can really do, frankly, within our own power. The truth is, you and I only have the capacity to forgive because God forgave us first. Unless we have first experienced God's forgiveness in our own lives, and we have wrapped ourselves tightly in this new identity as a forgiven child of the Most High God, we will very likely have very little to no capacity To forgive ourselves or anyone else. I'm not sure that we make this connection very often, but the truth of the matter is any act of forgiveness that we would offer to someone else is directly related to the quality of our worship of God. Because in worship, that is what we do. 
We acknowledge the forgiveness that God has given us. And then we extend this gift to others as a part of our worship of Him. Most of you know that last month a group of about 17 Christian missionaries who had been kidnapped for ransom in Haiti were able to escape through the night from their captors. A gentleman named David Troyer, the general director of the agency that sent them, he reported that these missionaries prayed for their captors and told them about God's love and their need to repent. They also worshiped together by singing the Psalms, remembering the Apostle Paul's call in the text we read today in verse 16. Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms. That's what they did. Upon their escape, Troyer videotaped a word to the kidnappers, and this is what he said. We do not know all the challenges you face. We do believe that violence and oppression of others can never be justified. You caused your hostages and their families a lot of suffering. However, Jesus taught us by word and by his own example that the power of forgiving love is stronger than the hate of violent force. Therefore, we forgive you. Over the last few years, we've all heard many other powerful stories about divine forgiveness emanating from the body of Christ both locally and around the world. All of us remember the words of forgiveness spoken by members of Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston after Dylan Ruth murdered nine people there. Many of us are also aware of what happened a few years ago when ISIS adopted 21 Egyptian Christians in North Africa and then they executed them. Christians in Egypt publicly express forgiveness for the executioners. And as a result, Muslims throughout the Middle East were awestruck by the forgiving power that only Jesus can give. They had no such frame of reference for such a radical act of forgiveness. And the result was this. Reports came back that there was an explosion of interest in purchasing of Arabic Bibles and other Christian literature throughout Egypt in the Middle East during that time. Let me give us one other example of the power of divine forgiveness. As we come up in a few weeks towards Martin Luther King Day, it comes from one of MLK's sermons entitled, Love Your Enemies. And in the message he says this, To those who hate us, we shall say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love. Throw us in jail, and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children, and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at midnight and beat us and leave us for half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. 
Folks, that is the power of God-sized forgiveness. And it's a power that has the capacity to change things. God knows it's hard for us to walk away from carefully guarded, well-worn bags of resentment and old hurts. And I'm not talking about the easy kinds, the little things that we are so able and quick to forgive. No, I'm talking about the big stuff. Each of us has people in our lives when when we hear their names, our hands grow cold. And when certain faces come to mind, we just simply cannot imagine how we could ever forgive them. I mean, how can we forgive a thief who has stolen precious memories from us? How can we forgive an ex-spouse who abandoned us or continues to malign us? How can we forgive a murderer who has taken a loved one from us? How can we forgive someone who sexually assaulted or molested us? A company that uses our talents and then discards us. How can we forgive a parent who hurt us? A child who destroys us? How can we forgive stupidity? Hatred, bigotry, cruelty, greed, war. How can we do this? Want to know what the answer is? The honest answer is, is we probably cannot. We can't. On our own, we cannot forgive such things. The truth of the matter is our earthly natures usually revert right back to an old adage that says this, don't get mad, get what? Even. Or as Ivana Trump said in the movie First Wives Club, don't get mad, get it all. Friends, we think like this because our identities are still clothed in our old selves. But with Christ and with the power of His cross, all things are possible. The fact is, our new identities in Him free us to forgive and to understand what forgiveness is and what it is not. To help us get a little better handle on this, what forgiveness is and what it's not, I want to put some things up on the screen for us here uh, for just a while. And I'm going to try and give uh, you time to copy some of this down if you feel uh, called to do so. But here's just a few things to keep in mind when we begin to consider what forgiveness is and what it is not. So first, forgiveness is not forgetting. Rather, it is choosing not to actively remember, not to mull over the pain, not to let the resentment control the way that we live our lives now. Secondly, forgiveness is not saying to the other party, you're okay. Rather, it's saying by the power of the cross, I'm okay. And I'm willing to let God deal with you on his terms. Thirdly, Forgiveness is not saying, I don't feel the pain anymore. 
Rather, it's saying my new identity in Christ means I do not feel the need to hold on to your involvement in my pain anymore. Finally, forgiveness is it is turning to our forgiving God in worship and praise and offering ourselves and all of our old baggage to him. It's God who forgives. And as we worship him, it is his forgiveness that pours through us and in us. And his forgiving spirit indwells us. And the wonderful news is. God can take our baggage and he can send it to a destination where we will never find it again. If you're interested in learning a little more about the nature of Christian forgiveness, Stacy has two books in the First Press bookstore that I would recommend. The first is called Total Forgiveness by R.T. Kendall. It's a classic. It's a standard there's also a second book uh, just for kids, and it's called The Friend Who Forgives. I would encourage you to pick up one of those if you want to explore this topic a little further. The scripture passage that we read from Paul's letter to the Colossians offers one final directive that we would do well to remember as we enter 2022 with the possibility of dragging a whole bunch of old grudges and result. Resentments along with us into the new year. In verse 17, he says, whatever you do, whether it is in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Maybe a hard question that you and I need to think about is this, whether we can honestly swear to get even with a liar or a cheat in the name of Jesus. I don't think you can do that. I mean, can we openly declare eternal hatred for someone who has wronged us in the name of Jesus? The answer, of course, is that we cannot. For some of you, 2021 has been a really good year. For others of us, it's been the most difficult year of our lives. As each of us begins our journey into 2022, one of the things we can do is look back and consider the baggage we need to leave behind. If we don't do this, then there will probably be times when that old luggage will unexpectedly pop up again into our lives, making us miserable by its weight upon our souls. A far better place to go is to a place where we move beyond the hurt and the disappointment we've taken on and to live into a spirit of gratitude and compassion and meekness and patience that is a part of our new identities as children of the Most High God. Will you pray with me? Lord, through the power of your cross, we have exchanged our old clothes for new ones. And we have experienced the depths of grace which you have to give. Be Lord over our lives as this new year begins. And give us the strength to remain faithful to the new ways you are calling us to serve you and one another. And we pray this in and through your holy name. Amen.